Which please turn with me to your study outlines. And as you turn, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad that you are joining us. And also those at our traditional service in the chapel. We are so glad uh, that you are joining us for our study of God's word uh, this morning as well. We're doing this series called The Hope Quotient. And we've talked about the fact that IQ, your intelligence quotient, that can be a helpful thing to have a higher IQ. That, that's a good thing. But they're finding in that blockbuster New York Times bestseller book from a few years ago called EQ, the emotional quotient. They're finding that your EQ will actually get you further ahead in life than your IQ. EQ being your emotional quotient. That is how well do you work and play with others? How well do you get along with the other kids in the sandbox? Okay, that will go a lot further than your IQ, your EQ. But now they're discovering something that the Bible has taught us for hundreds, if not thousands of years. The Bible has taught us that there's something even more important than that. And contemporary research is confirming that is your HQ, your hope quotient. That is uh, different people in the same circumstances. We might be in hard circumstances, but some people get crushed by those circumstances. Other people move beyond those circumstances. What's the key between success and failure when you face tough circumstances? It is your HQ, your hope quotient. So during the month of April and May, we're gonna, my goal is through God's word and the teaching of God's word to increase your HQ so that you can maximize the purpose and the plan that God has for your life. Now, the principle we're gonna look at this morning, I'm so excited about. I think this is really gonna help you. I'm so glad you got out of bed and got here and got the kids here and everything. You made the effort to get here because I really believe that God is gonna help you uh, today, help me uh, as we study this biblical principle, this principle from God's word, refocus on the future. You ever had people tell you what you can't do? You ever had a God-given dream and everybody around you said it couldn't be done or why it couldn't be done? Our principle today is to refocus on what you can become, not simply what is. To refocus on the future. Our theme verse is Philippians 3, verse 13. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. Have you ever seen a picture of a race? And, and in the race, the runner at the finish line is looking over their right-hand shoulder to see who's behind them. And as they do it, somebody is passing them on the left-hand side. So Paul says you can't run the best race if you're always looking at the past. He says forgetting the past. You say, Glenn, you don't realize what kind of past I have. It's really rough. It couldn't be rougher than the Apostle Paul. Uh, He was ISIS before there was ISIS. He used to roll into town with his men. And uh, they'd roll in, they'd take control of the town, they'd get the Christians together, they'd either throw them into jail or they'd kill them, just like ISIS does today when they take over new territory in the Middle East. He was ISIS before there was ISIS. And then Jesus got a hold of his life. And he regretted that past. You could read it through his writings, all through uh, the writings of Paul, how it broke his heart that he used to kill and persecute the very people that he now considered brothers and sisters in Christ. But even Paul said, forgetting the past as bad as my past is and looking forward to what lies ahead. Oswald Chambers said, beware of spending too much time looking back at what you once were when God wants you to become something that you've never been. Beware of spending too much time looking back at what you once were when God wants you to become something that you have never been. Now, don't feel bad. This is a natural tendency from the very beginning of followers of Christ. In Acts chapter 1, we see the ascension where Jesus ascended up into heaven. And right before he ascends, he gives them our final command. It's kind of our final marching orders before the commander-in-chief went to heaven. It's Acts 1 verse 8. He says, but my power will come upon you, the power of the Holy Spirit, 
and in Jerusalem when you wait there. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he gives us that last order. You're to be my witnesses. Change your world for Christ. Change your world for me. And then he ascends up into heaven. And it says in verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Now, most Bible scholars believe they were just in awe of seeing Jesus ascend into heaven. But I wonder if other things weren't going through their minds. They look up at heaven, uh, to Jesus, and they're thinking to themselves, there go the good old days. I mean, my goodness, for three and a half years, three, three and a half years, we've been able to walk with God, have dinner with God, visit with God, hang out with God. For the last three and a half years, all the good days are behind us. And they sit there just staring. We're going to miss Jesus. Goodbye, Jesus. Uh, the best days of our life are behind us. And staring up, thinking of the good old days. And he says, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. He says, in the same way you've seen him leave, he's going to come back. Now you go out and prepare your friends and family, prepare your slice of the world for his second coming. You've got work to do. Forget what's behind and look forward to what lies ahead. Now here's the question that can change everything in your life. This is the question that if you're a parent, uh, discouraged with a situation with your children, this can change everything. If you're a husband or a wife in a marriage that you're disappointed in, this can change everything. If you're in a job that you don't care for right now, this can change everything. If you're at a school that you don't care for that much, you're taking a class that you're finding discouraging, this can change everything. Here's the question that can change everything in your life. It's why I think God got you out of bed and got you to come here this morning. He invited you by divine appointment to ask this question for you and for me. What can this become? What, think of the most discouraging thing in your life right now. Think of the most discouraging person in your life right now. And just take a moment to point them out to me so I can just see who they are. Yeah. What, what's the most discouraging person in your life? What's the most discouraging thing in your life? And ask the question, what can he or she, what can this become? Because Jesus is in the business of not looking at the mess that we are in. He's looking at what we can become. He doesn't look at the is. He looks at the become. Mark 1, verse 17. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. It's why he was the greatest leader in world history. Now, we worship Jesus because he's our Savior. And eternity is more, way more important than anything that we've done in this life. But you know what? If you just step back every once in a while, look at Jesus like a secular leader. And it's absolutely miraculous what he did. I mean, think about it. In just a thousand days of, of public ministry, in just three years' time, he launched the biggest movement in world history. Fastest growing then, fastest growing today, biggest today, one out of three people on planet Earth in some ways are followers of Jesus. It's in all 238 countries of the world. It's in 13,500 of the 14,500 ethno-linguistic groups. It's in almost every language group of the world. It is the most pervasive. It is the most widespread. It is the biggest, and it continues to be the fastest growing movement in all of world history. Now, we, we know he did that because he was God. 
But if you just look at it for other reasons, what was the thing that attracted people to Jesus? Why were people drawn like a magnet to Jesus? Because Jesus was not focused on what people were like. He was focused on what they could become. And people loved him for it. And people were drawn to him for it. And people were attracted to him like a magnet uh, because of it. I mean, think of Peter. Oh my goodness, just look at Peter. Uh, He was impulsive. If he was around today, he'd be diagnosed ADD. I mean, he was ADD before there was a diagnosis for it. He would speak first, think later. He would act first, think later. He had foot and mouth disease. His mouth was always open and his foot was always in it. He was a denier of Jesus. I mean, what a hopeless mess Peter was. And Jesus looked at him, and he didn't look at the mess he was or is. He looked at what he could become. Acts chapter 16, or Matthew chapter 16 When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, he always answered first. He answered, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, in the Aramaic, this means a massive rock. And on this massive rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades and hell will not overcome it. So he looks at this mess of a guy named Peter. He didn't see see who he was. He saw what he could become. And I tell you, That's what he does for you and me. Does anybody want to say amen to that? Aren't you glad? Isn't that what drew you to him? Isn't that why we love him? Because he doesn't look at who we is. He looks at who we can become. Apology to English teachers that are here. Now here's the thing. As followers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we're to do the same thing. What are we? We are Christ followers. So if Jesus was in the business of not being locked into who somebody is, but of what they could become, then we should do the same thing. And this is what makes Christianity magnetic. This is what makes Jesus magnetic. This is what can make a church magnetic, is if we do the same thing, ask ourselves the question, am I able to see things not as they are right now, but in terms of what they can become? Think of that frustrating person in your life. Am I able to see him or her, not as they are right now, but in terms of what they can become? Think of that frustrating area of your life, your, your class that you're in, or the school that you're in, or the work that you're in, or the marriage that you're in, or the, the other relationship that you're in. Am I able to see things not as they are right now, but in terms of what they can become? You know what a leader does? A leader, they say, sees a preferred future and leads people from here into that preferred future. That's the definition of a leader. A leader is able to see a preferred future to the one we're in right now, the the present. And he or she is able to lead people from the present into that preferred future. You say, well, Glenn, I don't consider myself a leader. Everybody's a leader. Everybody has what we call a sphere of influence. In our church, our favorite Greek word is oikos. It means the Greek word for household. It's the eight to 15 in your sphere of influence. Everybody's got an oikos, okay? Everybody's got that eight to 15 where you lead, you influence them. And we say this over and over again. Here's God's plan for your life and my life. His plan is for you to go to heaven and to take your oikos with you to heaven. 
And if everybody goes to heaven and leads their oikos to heaven with them, the entire world will be one for Christ. Okay? That's what we're, we're called to do. Go to heaven, take your oikos with it. Uh, heaven is the preferred future. How many would agree with me that heaven is a preferred future over hell? Raise your hands if you agree. Okay. Heaven is the preferred future. And so God's plan for each of our lives is for us to lead, to influence our oikos to the preferred future, to go to heaven and to take them with us. Our favorite English word, our favorite Greek word is oikos. Our favorite English word is purpose. That is, we, we want to help the people of our oikos find their purpose in Christ, then to connect with others in community to do that together, and that will enable us to do it for the journey all the way to heaven. So find our purpose in Christ, help others in our oikos see their purpose in Christ, and then connect with each other in community so that we can finish the journey and, and get to heaven together to the preferred future that God has in store for us. It's the difference between become versus is. Wayne Gretzky, the great uh, hockey player, they once asked him the secret of his greatness. He says, I never skate to where the puck is. I skate to where the puck is going. Okay? Now, for you hockey fans that are always on me that I don't, know, don't use more hockey illustrations, there's one for this month. Okay, I check it off. You know, one a month, I got it checked off for April. I have done my hockey illustration. But he had an instinct as to where the puck was going. And he would always skate to where the puck was going rather than to when it, where it currently is. And, and the same thing is true for us. Jesus had a become versus is orientation, and we need to have uh, the, the same in our lives. Ray Johnston writes, show me a parent of a teenager who is focused on what their kid is like right now, and I'll show you a discouraged parent. Show me a parent who is focused on what his or her teenager can become, and anything is possible. Show me a husband or a wife focused on what his or her marriage is like right now, and usually I can show you a discouraged person. Show me a couple focused on what their marriage can become, and anything is possible. Show me Christians focused on what their spiritual lives are right now. In all likelihood, they will be discouraged. But the minute they begin to focus on what their relationship with God could become, anything is possible. Show me a person who wishes he was in better shape physically, that would be me, but is focused on what his life and the scale says right now, and he is probably discouraged. Yet all kinds of possibilities emerge the minute he focuses on what he could become in the future. Now, I want to introduce you to um, a, a hero of mine, and, and, and it's an old guy like me, for those of you that are younger, here at the 1111 service. And, and you probably don't know him, probably, may, probably never heard his name, probably only a few pastor types have, have heard his name. But if you're from my generation, you know the people he influenced that now influence so many. His name was Howard Hendricks. He died just a couple of years ago, February 2013, at the age of 90. He was simply known as Prof, and he was the influencer to some of this generation's greatest communicators of God's Word. For 50 years, about half a century, for decades, he was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary uh, for more than half a century, and he trained some of the greatest communicators of, of my generation, people like Chuck Swindoll, Tony Evans, Bruce Wilkinson, David Jeremiah, and countless others. I mean, this is, if you've been influenced by those people, and if you're in my generation, you, you probably have. There, there's newer ones coming along for the younger generation. But in my generation, these have influenced so many. And this was the teacher. I mean, if you're a teacher, 
Just think, your influence is not just what you do, it's you influence others, and their influence now becomes your legacy. And I know we've got a lot of school teachers in our, in our church family, and man, what a legacy you have, because those you influence like him now influence others. Uh, David Jeremiah put his picture up there. He says about Dr. Hendricks, impact is only as good as it plays out in future generations. Prof, meaning Howard Hendricks, is like a pebble thrown in a lake. The ripples just keep going outward. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, one of my heroes, uh, he writes, when I was in seminary, I took a course from many great men. One of them was Dr. Howard Hendricks. Every once in a while, he would write an affirming note at the top of my paper. One time he wrote, this is great, Chuck. Someday you will write. Years later, as I put together my first book, those words fueled my, desi- my drive to get the manuscript done. The words, someday you will write, freed me to write. And Chuck Swindoll has become one of the most prolific Christian writers of, 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 of our generation. And just think, it all goes back to a teacher who took an extra five seconds on a really good paper to write down, this is good stuff. I bet someday you're going to write, and it planted a seed in Chuck Swindoll that eventually bore fruit. And so maybe you're here because God wants to encourage you. But maybe there's somebody out there this week, God never wastes, his word never returns void. And and maybe it's for you, but maybe it's also that you can be that become person for somebody who feels like they are stuck in is uh, this this uh, upcoming week. Now, there are many benefits to refocusing on the future. Um, uh, Back to Ray Johnson. He says, when a teacher focuses on what a student can become rather than on what he or she is, the future is liberated from the past. When a business focuses on what it can become rather than on what it has been, new and exciting opportunities can be pursued. When a church focuses on what it can become rather than on what it is, fresh vision can finally lead to a better future. Now, here's the first benefit. Passion replaces apathy and discouragement. Um, I don't know if any of you have heard of the book by Robert, Robert Fulgham called All I Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. How many of you remember that book? Okay. All I Ever Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. How many of you have tremendous student debt from college and grad school, and, and, and you don't need that debt because after all, everything you need to know, you learned in kindergarten, you know? So, so you, you, know, you say that, it's like, oh man, what did I get all that debt for? And, and what Robert Fulgham says, you ask a group of kindergartners, how many of you can sing? Every hand goes up. How many of you can draw? Every hand goes up. You ask those same kindergartners 25 years later, how many of you can sing? One or two tentatively raise their hands. Ask that same group of kindergartners 25 years later, how many of you can draw? One or two hands tentatively go up. Why? Because they used to have the passion of what they could become, but now the isness of life has beaten that down. You know, um, uh, Pastor Brian, I know m- many of you are here that we're just in the pre-marriage class uh, that Pastor Brian teaches at, at nine forty-five. And if any of you are seriously dating or, um, you know, engaged, this is just a great class to catch. It meets at 945 before uh, we come in here. And my guess is everybody's really enthusiastic in that class because it is pre-marriage. Now, let me explain that real quick, okay. Um, Because they're looking ahead to what it can become. And so we have passion. But a number of years later, when we get into our marriages, sometimes the isness of what our marriage is 
beats down what our marriage could become, and we lose that passion. Or when a person freshly meets Christ, they're a new Christian, and they're all excited. What can I become? What can God do through me? But then after years, the, the is beats down the what can I become, and they lose their passion. You have a new startup in your business, and everybody's all excited. What can this business, this new startup, what can it become? And then after a few years, it's all about what is. And people are fighting over what percentage of the salary they get and who gets the corner office and who gets credit for what project. And they've lost their passion because they've, they need to get refocused on the future. And when you get refocused on the future beyond what is to what you can become, passion replaces apathy and discouragement. Next page of your study outline. Benefit number two, you experience great comebacks. Look at this list from the Bible. Jonah started out running away from God, but ended up influencing a whole metropolis. Thomas started out racked by doubt, but ended up taking the gospel all the way to India. Moses did nothing significant for the first two-thirds of his life, which I find encouraging, Ray Johnson says, but ended up delivering two million people from centuries of slavery. Jacob started out as a liar, ended up becoming a leader. Timothy started out as shy, fearful, and insecure, but ended up becoming the Apostle Paul's protege. Paul started out persecuting Christians, but ended up writing the majority of the New Testament. John Mark, that we studied a few weeks back when we did our series on the book of Acts, started out as a quitter, but ended up tapped by the Spirit of God to paint a portrait of Jesus Christ we call the Gospel of Mark. Peter started out as an arrogant loudmouth who threw Jesus under the bus but ended up as a great Christian leader. You know, one of the great stories of our time, one of my favorite books, is the book Unbroken about the life of Louis Zemperini. Amazing life. I mean, it's crazier than, than, than fiction. I mean, it's like a true Forrest Gump. His life is like a true a Forrest Gump that actually happened, okay? Uh, just amazing. Uh, he eventually became an Olympic track champion, ran in the Olympics, and met Adolf Hitler at the Berlin Olympics. He's a gunner in a, in a fighter plane, a bomber, in World War II, gets shot down over the Pacific, sets the record for the longest days, number of days surviving in a rubber raft in shark-infested waters, only to stumble into the hands of the enemy, gets tortured in an enemy concentration camp for a couple of years, survives the war, comes back to the United States, has what we would refer to today as post-traumatic stress syndrome. Becomes an alcoholic. He's on the verge of divorce from his wife. Ends up going to the first Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles, the famous one that launched the career of Billy Graham. Commits his life to Christ, radically saved, restores his marriage, uh, spends the rest of his life sharing Jesus, goes back to Japan and reconciles with almost all the guards who had tortured him when he was in prison. Unbelievable life story. Now, it all started in Torrance, uh, just down the road from us here. And he was a juvenile delinquent in, in, in Torrance. I mean, he was a loser. He was in trouble with the police all the time. His life was going nowhere, and he didn't believe in himself. But he had one person in his life who believed in him. And it was his big brother. And his big brother saw beyond what who Louis was or is at the moment. And everybody around him, the police, his parents, everybody in the neighborhood, the community, said that Louis Zamperini, he's just headed for nowhere. His is is nothing. And, 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 and there's nothing beyond that. But he had one person in his life who could see beyond the is to the what could he become. And it made all the difference in the world. Maybe I can 
be that for you this morning with God's word. God's word can be that for you that can see what you can become rather than what is. Or maybe you can be that for somebody else this upcoming week. Benefit number three, grace frees you. Future vision fuels you. Benefit number four, you are set free to dream. Reggie OJ says there are five categories of people. Number one are, are those with no dream. They just go through the motions in life with, with no dream, no real purpose for living. And you know what? This is the natural consequence of what's being taught around the world and in our country, that, you're just, that people are just a random group of cells experiencing random chance, and we're just organized dirt that goes back to the dirt when we die. And that just sinks in after a while. We've been taught that long enough. We just begin to live that way. So we think life is just the sum of having a few good restaurant meals and catching a few good me- meals at a restaurant and, and a few, few good movies and maybe a few fun weekends in Vegas and you raise kids to do the same, then you die and go to the dirt and they do the same. Because after all, there's no meaning to life if there's nothing after this life. We're just random cells experiencing random chance. It's one of the things I most love about following Jesus is he gives significance to our life. He gives meaning. Now, all of a sudden, you have an eternal purpose for living once you come to follow him. Jesus said, come follow me and you will become fishers of men. You will become something that is tied into eternity and everything you do, whether it's your your, your work, uh, uh, like we're going to study tonight at the hub with, you know, the, our work of being an act of worship to God, whether it's our work, whether it's our studies, whether it's anything in our lives, our relationships, it all now has a great purpose behind it. So those with no dream. Number two, those with a low dream. Hey, some people have a dream, but it's just not a big enough dream to sell your life out to. You ask a lot of people, what's your dream? Make a lot of money and retire. That's my dream. Make a lot of money and retire as soon as I can. Okay, that's a dream. At least it's better than having no dream, but it's too low of a dream to sell your life. I mean, the, the, the disciples were selling their lives out to fishing and making as much money from their fish as they could so they could retire. I guess back then they never retired so they could eat. And Jesus said, come follow me and I will help you become and sell yourself out to a bigger dream than that. That's too low of a dream to sell your life out to. Then number three, those with the wrong dream. Okay, and I got a story that I could have put under the wrong dream or I could have put it under low dream. It fits both of them, but people with the wrong dream. I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but Kimberly and I, when we were pastoring for 12 years in a little town called Homer, New York, next to Cortland, New York, in Cortland County, a very rural county in upstate New York, uh, there was a doctor in the area called Dr. Gibbs. And he was just like legendary. This guy, he was older by the time we got there, but everybody knew Dr. Gibbs. He had delivered half the babies in the county. Probably every family, either somebody in their family or they themselves had had their health restored by Dr. Gibbs. Everybody knew Dr. Gibbs. He was just a legend. He had piles of influence. He was just the man everybody knew. He was a man of character, Seventh-day Adventist. And, and, and he was a follower of Jesus, and, 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 and he loved God, and he was a man of character, integrity, and everybody knew that about him, and everybody had been blessed by Dr. Gibbs, and everybody knew Dr. Gibbs, and he was probably the most influential person ever in the history of that county. And I remember opening up the paper one day, the Cortland Standard, and everybody back then read the local newspaper, and it was a letter to the editor from Dr. Gibbs. 
And he says, you know what? I'm older now. He was in his 80s. And he said, I'm going to die soon. And there's one thing I want to say to the people of Cortland County before I die. Just one thing I want to say before I die. I'm like, oh, here comes, here comes. Oh, my goodness. This guy has got piles of political capital. He has political chips piled in his office. He can hardly walk around his office. He's got influence. He's got goodwill. He has got the ear of the people of our county, and he's a follower of Jesus. Here it comes, and he proceeds to write, if I could say one thing to the people of Cortland County before I die, it would be this. Worship God on Saturday. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? Uh, You would sell your life out, all that influence, for a secondary, disputable Christian issue rather than Jesus? That would be your plea? That they follow some secondary thing that your particular sect follows rather than follow the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? He was a great man, but he sold himself out to the wrong dream or to too low of a dream. Number four, those with a vague dream. They kind of generally idea, know what the dream is, but not really sure. It's just too vague. Unlike Jesus, who knew at the age of 12 exactly what his purpose was. It says in Luke 2.49, uh, Jesus said to his parents, Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? He knew at the age of 12 exactly what his purpose was. And that enabled him 21 years later, at the age of 33, on the cross, to say It is, you tell me what, finished. The only way at 33 you can say my purpose is finished is if you knew it, and he knew it clearly. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so then there are those with God's dream. And here's a key principle that I confess to you I really didn't learn till later in the Christian life and I continue to struggle with today, but it makes all the difference. Let me tell you, when I first started following Christ, here's what I would do. I would come up with my own dreams and then ask God to bless my dream. So I'd think and think and think, Glenn, what's your best dream? Ah, here's a dream. And then I, my prayers would go something like this. God, bless it, 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 bless it. That would be my dreams. Amen. And that would be my prayers. Bless my dream. Bless my dream. And then it was like rolling a dice. Because that dream may coincide with God's will and his dream. And so then he'd bless it, but it may not coincide with it. And then I wouldn't have the blessing and the resources uh, that would come with God's blessing on that dream. So somebody taught me a few years after I was following Christ, there's a different way. You wait in quietness before the Lord and listen for a still small voice. And sometimes it's a literal voice, but most of the time it's through circumstances or praying or other people. And as you work things through, okay, and, and all of a sudden you'll sense this is God's dream for my life. And then you just jump on board. And you still pray, but you can be 100% sure that because it's God's idea to begin with, that he will bless it, he will resource it, he will empower it. Because it's his idea to begin with. Does that make sense? And it makes all the difference in the world. Uh, Story of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 3. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. And then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. 
And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. My son Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. And if you take the time and get quiet enough, God will reveal his dream to you. Jump into that dream, press into that dream, and then you know you'll have his blessing, power, and resourcing behind that dream. But you got to get quiet enough to hear it. Forgive me, this is one of my favorite illustrations. I use it over and over again. But telegraph operator uh, job opening in the 1800s in the Old West. Young man comes in, wants to apply for this job as a telegraph operator. And he goes into the office, and it's all bustling, and people running around, busy, 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 and the tick, tick, tick of the telegraph, uh, uh, you know, going on in the background. And there's a sign by the boss's door that says, please wait until you're called in for the interview, for the job. And he knows there's a bunch of other guys in there, a lot of competition for the job. So he sits down there for a couple of minutes, and it's all chaos in there, tick, tick, tick in the background. And all of a sudden, he jumps up and goes into the boss's office, and the other guy's like, oh, he's in so much trouble. Because the sign said, wait until you're called in to go in. A couple of minutes later, the boss comes out with his arm around the young man, says, sorry, guys, the job's been taken. It's been filled. They're like, what? What's up with that? He broke the rules and he gets it. Well, the boss said, well, in the background on the telegraph, it's been saying, if you can understand this, come on in. The job is yours. And he was the only guy that got quiet enough that he was able to hear the telegraph over the din and chaos of the room, heard the message, came in and got the job. Got to get quiet enough to hear that still small voice say, speak for your servant is listening. Now, you still need to check it. I mean, dreams, you know, you, you still got to check it through other means. So you don't come up with something crazy, okay? Uh, here, here are some questions to start with. Is this dream God-honoring? Will this dream change lives and influence people? Does this dream resonate with godly, visionary people? And other questions that you can ask. Are other people that are, that are, you know, equally passionate about following Christ, do they say, yeah, yeah, that sounds exactly what God might tell somebody? Okay, is it honoring to God? Is it, is it going to change and influence people? Benefit number five, forward momentum stabilizes and energizes. Uh, I heard about a bike race the other day, and the prize went to the person who could ride their bike the slowest. You say, what's up with that? That's dumb. No, think about it. What's the hardest thing in the world to do on a bicycle? Drive it slowly. And, and when you get it almost to a stop, it takes real skill to, to stay. I mean, the faster it goes, the more stable it is. And the same thing is true. Once you get God's dream and vision, forward momentum will stabilize you and energize you throughout your life as you fulfill that thing that God has called on you to do.